continuing, we've been talking about uh, relational formation and the process of change. We have, uh, we've said a very radical thing that I struggle to believe, and maybe you struggle to believe it too, and it's this, that every problem that you would list in your life as a legitimate difficulty is a symptom, not a root problem. That if we were to trace back any problem in this world or in our life to its source, it would have to do with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, in the, in the middle of a moment, we're not thinking about Jesus. Well, if we are, we're mostly blaming him for not coming through for us. But uh, it's hard to believe that the root problem in your life and in mine is a broken relationship with God. And when we talk about the process of change, what's going on is us figuring out in the complexity of life how to be near to God. We know that this is true, that the root problem is our relationship with God because of the end of the story in Revelation 21. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God, the presence of God is among men and he will dwell among them and shall be his people and God himself will be among them. So there's gonna come a day uh, after we all pass away that we're going to be with the living God and see him face to face. Now listen to how it's described when we're united fully with God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You and I live in the, uh, in the challenge of never fully realizing that yet longing for it with our whole hearts. There's still gonna be dying as we experienced in our family this last week. There's still gonna be pain and mourning, depression, anxiety, unanswered prayers, complication. But the end answer is also our daily answer. And it's to draw closer to Jesus Christ and to, de to be defined by him. And our, our urgent plea throughout this series is that you would come to believe that more and more. In, in secular psychology, which I think is the God of this age, uh, Jesus is a placebo perhaps, but if you really want to work through your internal struggles or relational struggles. There's just some techniques that we could teach you. And if you would master those techniques, you would be just fine. And I don't believe that that's true. I believe that technique helps, for sure. But at the end of the day, unless we have a living relationship with, with God, those techniques will always fall short. The overall arching process of coming into a right relationship with God, we've broken down into three stages. And it's always artificial when you talk like this because life is way more jumbled up than something as neat as that. But we've said that there's at least three qualities of having a healthy relationship with God moving into that. 
in his understanding of the truth, uh, moving through repentance, and then into faith. And so we are spending this week and next week finishing off talking about repentance. This week we're going to be looking at the issue of confession, to confess our sins. In 1 John 1, 8 to 9, it says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, we are coming this week. Uh, next week starts to get happier. But we're coming to the, to, the, to the bottom of the cross. And this is the place that humanity is fighting with all of its might to run away from because it's the death of self. And this is seen as the enemy of the fruitful life, of the abundant life, of fulfillment and happiness and joy. It's the enemy of it. And Jesus comes and says that unless you die, you'll never experience resurrection life. And so we're coming to the bottom of that trade between trading our life for his. And what that looks like is this issue of confession. Confession simply, is a, I mean, it's a, it's a Bible word. We don't talk about it very much. But it simply means to be honest about our problems. To say, you know what? It's not going well. And moreover, this is the part that I've played in it not going well. There are two problems with talking like that, with saying that something is my fault. I think we have two problems. The first is excuses. And the reality is that nothing is entirely our fault, right? There's nothing. Like, for sure, you can blame, you know, your DNA. <laughs> like, if you're scrambling. You can at least go back and blame your, your, your mother and father for birthing you, you know, with their DNA. I mean, it, it, I'm just helping you know what to do if you, if you don't know who else to blame. Blame your mom and dad. They'll just have a blank look and say, I'm sorry. Um, but we can, uh, we can blame our circumstances. We can blame it on other people's sin. People have sinned against us and wounded us. And that's very real. And if you've been, if you've been hurt by others... It's particularly hard to imagine how that's not your root problem. Can you follow me on this? This is just radical. It's just radical that we go through life being hurt and that's not our main problem. Psychological disorders are real things. And it's not our main problem. Demons. Demons are harassing us all the time, and we hardly know it. But they are partly to blame for the difficulties that we have in our life. Our own ignorance, which is why we went through that first phase talking about truth. Just our own ignorance. We just don't know what to do. I don't know how many times in any given day I have no idea what to do next. Just no idea. And I think perhaps, and I've alluded to it 
in regard to other people's sin. But I think the biggest excuse that we have is pain. And pain seems to be this uh, ticket that justifies me not being a nice person. If you hurt me, or even if somebody else hurts me, I somehow feel like I have permission to be mean and selfish, angry, falling into addiction, whatever it would be, I somehow feel justified. And the more pain that is in my life, the more justified I feel in my poor behavior and ungodly attitudes. The the hardest thing to do to help somebody change is to help them not be a victim of their pain. It's incredibly hard because the pain is real and they're justified in feeling hurt. And so you have somebody, uh, otherwise known as all of us, but you have somebody who's, who's legitimately a victim, legitimately so. They're not making anything up or they're not on just, you know, some pity party. They've legitimately been hurt by others. And to somehow lead somebody on a journey out of being a victim into confession is a bit work. It's not easy. It's not easy to help somebody else, and it's not easy for you or me to be able to say in the, in the midst of being full of pain, and look at what people have done to me, that I say, this is not my biggest problem. It only defines me because there's something else going on inside of me that is mostly about me. That is super hard to do. One of the the biggest challenges that I have with our vision as a church is to commission all of us to make disciples. Because if you're going to sign up to invest in someone else's life, eventually you're going to have to come around to moving them outside of a victim orientation to a confession orientation And that is not easy to do. Because what's immediately going to come back on you is, I thought you loved me. I thought you were here for me. I'm already down and now you're kicking me. What's that? This is a loving church? What are you doing? But you and I know that the only things that we can change are the things that we take responsibility for. If we're a victim, we have simply rendered ourselves powerless. The more we make it everyone else's fault, the less and less we can do to actually move toward the things that God invites us into. So excuses are the first problem to say uh, that, that makes it difficult for us to say it's my fault. The second, equally troubling, is our desires. 
that we uh, we just like sinning. We like feeling in control. We like the uh, the rush of addiction. We enjoy pride, feeling good about ourselves. We call it self-esteem. Pride doesn't sound very nice. I don't know why I was I was thinking about this. I, I was thinking about how we like being in control of our lives, which I think is at the root of self-centeredness. We don't want to trust God. We want to just trust in ourselves, be self-contained, self-made. And uh, I, I was thinking about, I don't know how I was thinking about this, but I was thinking about gangsters and, uh, <clears throat> and people who are really like professional criminals who, who live their whole life breaking the law like it's not their hobby it's it's what they do you know and some of them are successful for decades of uh, earning a living through crime and I thought about them and I thought okay if you're that smart because I mean you got to be smart you know to be a gangster <laughs> Um, and if you're, uh, you know, if you're that smart, you could have apl applied your intelligence to something noble and for sure made as, mu as much money. Like, for sure. But there's something attractive about bucking the system and, being, and, and, and showing everybody I don't follow anybody. I do it all my way on my terms. And even the government and police, I can outsmart. There's a pride in it. And I think there's, a, there's an echo of that in our lives. Where we, at the end of the day, we'll judge the value of a day on how good we feel about ourselves. Because we like it. Excuses and desire make it difficult to confess our sin and repent. So what motivates us, and this is the big issue to me, what motivates us to turn from our self-centered excuses and desires? I remember, this was a number of years ago, I was talking to a man and uh, he came into my office. I had an office back then. And... Uh, and he says, no, I just meet you at Brecca. But, uh, but you know, I don't know if back then. And, uh, and, he, and he comes up to me and he says, uh, he says, I, uh, I hate my wife. I think she's ugly. Everything about her is unattractive. And I, I feel repulsed being around her. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hunting for something, you know. Isn't she like a little knight? <laughs> like I'm trying to, you know, let's look on the, you know, the bright side of your wife. And I remember, I met with this guy a number of times. And uh, he became a symbol for me that seems to be our last, uh, our last uh, reason or 
ticket to not repent. And it's simply this, I don't feel like it. I can't do it genuinely. I don't have the emotions. So God, I would love to repent, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm sure I've done a few things wrong, probably over the years. I'm not feeling like I want to repent. I don't have any emotional desire to go down into that valley, that cross thing. I just, uh, I'm just not feeling it. But I promise you, if I feel it, I'll go to the cross, I really will, and I'll repent for my sins. If you've done any kind of discipleship or counseling, you know that the primary issue that you face, if you've tried to change, it's simply this, it's motivation. Motivation is the hardest thing to work through. You know, how many of us are wanting to be more fit? Because it's January. And, uh, and what fades in February and March? It's just motivation. And if, and if happiness is our motivation, you know, an, an, an extra helping is just a faster way to get there. Right? It's just a faster way to get there than through this whole cross thing. I'll just have a, you know, double that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy. And the thing that we're constantly struggling with, that we constantly bump up against, is the motivation to repent and to turn from our sin. Are you following me on this? This is a big deal for every single one of us. I'm not feeling it enough to, to, to go through the change that's required for me to have a healthy relationship with God and to be happy. Well, let me help you in three ways. We're going to look at three motivations that help us work through a desire to repent and to be in right relationship with God. The first one is called consequences. Consequences. Haggai, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, talks about this. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So what's the first way that God motivates us to change is he says, think about it. Just think about your life. And what I'd like you to do is to connect the dots between your presenting problems. Uh, you know, the whole anxiety, depression, stress, broken relationships, never seeming to get ahead at work, uh, small bank account, whatever it is. And what I'm, I'm wanting you to do right now, God says, is I'd like you to, to connect those dots back to me. And if you can manage to link your relationship with me to the lack of fulfillment 
that you experience in your life, you're on your way to repentance and to confession. This is not easy to do. To believe that our root problem is a broken relationship with God. It has nothing to do with my bank account. Nothing to do with whether I'm married or not. My emotional well-being. These are all symptomatic of a broken relationship with God. That's really the problem. And it seems that what happens in our life is that there's this spiral and it feeds off of itself between distance and demand. And what I mean by that is that the more we distance ourselves from God, the more that we demand from ourselves and those around us. And, and the more that we demand of ourselves, we say to God, look how hard I'm trying. It's their fault or your fault. And so we distance ourselves even more from God which causes us to demand even more from ourselves and others. The Bible calls this idolatry. That as we deify ourselves, we start demanding more and more of the people around us. Becoming more and more enslaved to the very things we're trying to get set free from. And God invites us to say, in your demand distance spiral... Can we please understand that what's making your life difficult, why you don't have enough food, why your purse seems to have holes in it, is because you've distanced yourself from me. Consequences is the first motivation that God gives us to confess our sin and repent. Here's the problem I mean, I'm sure there's many. This is a problem with this motivation. It's a good motivation to start with. The problem with this motivation alone is that it leads to what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is where we simply feel bad about our lives. And so if all we've done is simply connect the, dot, the dots... We're just going to go, great, I'm distant from you, obviously powerless. I know I'm screwing up, and there's nothing that I can do about it. Well, this is great. The problem with a consequence-only motivation is that it's still about our own personal happiness. This is the problem with it. It's why it's insufficient. It's a great place to start. But it's not enough. We know this when we look at, for example, the 10 lepers that Jesus healed. And we know that only one of them came back. All of them felt the consequences, came, didn't distance themselves, came to Jesus, God healed, but never really took it that step further, came back to give gratitude to Jesus. It's possible to just live a life of consequence and feel bad about that and beat ourselves up and get angry with God. There's a second motivation, and it's love. Now, um, I don't know if you've heard of this word 
uh, linked to this before. But it's empathy toward God. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this before. But have you ever put yourself in God's shoes regarding your life? Have you ever done this before? One of my favorite things about going through uh, reading the prophets, the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament, it gets a little tiring, I admit. But one of the things that I uh, am fascinated by with the Old Testament prophets is they have one agenda for the people of God to be empathetic to God and the conflict of heart that he has in loving and leading us. In, uh, in Hosea 1-2, just to give one example, in Hosea 1-2 it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so what the prophets are constantly trying to do is to help the people of God turn their focus from a, a self-absorbed orientation to, uh, to somehow catapult them out of that into considering their life from God's point of view. There is a popular uh, form of marriage counseling right now called EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy. And uh, what the, um, the primary premise of this uh, model, and it's very successful by the way, this model of, of therapy is, is they're saying that in the past, the way that you would help a marriage get better is you would give somebody... Um, skills on how to have better communication, how to have better sex, how to have uh, a better uh, bank account, like uh, work through, you know, how to work through difficult things. Uh, that there was a, that the primary way that you would increase the health of a marriage is by working on the personal skills of the couple. And uh, what they discovered was that all you needed to do for a marriage to be happier was to have the couple fall in love again. And as soon as they were motivated by love toward their spouse, all of the other issues kind of found their rightful place. All they needed to do was to remember again how much they loved them. And when their motivation changed, well, all the other issues followed soon afterwards. This makes me consider whether this isn't true in our relationship with God. The primary way that you gain empathy is through listening. And I find that if I'm feeling distant from God, uh, 
unrepentant over my sin. In other words, I think I deserve to have sinned. I should have sinned because you didn't come through for me and everybody else and all those other excuses. I need to be quiet and listen to my father and understand his perspective on my life. Just reading uh, a couple days ago, a great book. Uh, the, his last name is Brenner. I uh, can't remember his first name. He was talking all about the love of God and God's uh, affection towards us. And I'm reading this book and I'm just immediately, everything finds its rightful place in my life because I'm seeing how he sees me. Everything just changes out of that. Nothing's changed and everything has changed, if you know that saying, right? Because I, I now see how he sees me. There's, there's something that I think is critical uh, that you can tell whether you're empathic toward God and it's this, if you grieve. Isaiah 57, uh, Psalm 51, there's many places where you can read this. But there, if you look at your life, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this to you, it's just true for all of us, steeped in sin. And then you see him for who he is and you see yourself in light of him, the experience is grief. Grief over the loss of relationship. Now again, remember there's a difference. Uh, uh, is it first or second Corinthians? I always get it wrong, second Corinthians seven. Um, there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow says, I'm a jerk. I'm lousy, I hate myself. I'm stupid and lustful and proud like that. That's just beating yourself up. Godly sorrow says, it's killing me that I'm out of relationship with you. It's just killing me. I can't handle it. I gotta be reconciled to you. And now when I see you and I see me in light of you, it's not about me beating myself up. It's about me longing to be reconciled to you because I'll go crazy if you're away from me. I can't survive. I can't breathe unless you're near me. Have you grieved over your sin? The way that you grieve over your sin It's not through a worldly sorrow. It's through empathy. Having a sorrowful and what the Bible calls contrite heart. It just means a sorrowful heart. It's like, ah, oh God, I do long for you. And I see you now. And I'm not thinking about my defenses. I'm thinking about you. And I'm listening to you. And I see how you see me. I'm the promiscuous woman. You're the faithful husband. You've always been faithful to me. 
and this is how I've treated your faithfulness? This is sick. You don't deserve this. This is confession. There's a problem with this, and then we'll go to the last one. The problem here, as I've already alluded, is that this can lead to a false guilt where we're simply feeling bad about our performance. And we're missing that the sorrow isn't about beating ourselves up for being jerks. Our sorrow is over a lack of connection with God. I just need to say parenthetically, can you see how hard it is to be motivated by love and relationship? It's just we don't think this way. But it's pivotal. Last one. Honor. Honor. Repentance is being ashamed of dishonoring God. Luke 15, 21 says, uh, this is the story of the prodigal son. The son's coming home now after squandering the, uh, the gifts that the father gave to him. He comes back, no money left. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, it's shame. Listen to Psalm 83, 16. I don't know if you've ever read this verse before, but it's a shocking verse. This is uh, the prayer of David in order to motivate people to repent. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. There is a motivation that's, uh, that's very significant for me in repentance. And it's simply this. I can't do this to you. I can't do this to you. You're the living God. You've saved my soul. You've been faithful and loving and kind and generous. And I'm going to take the money and run. I'm going to take the goodness of my father and say, you know, yo, it's been real. I don't know how you say it nowadays. <clears throat> I can't do this to you. I'm ashamed of not honoring you. There's a motivation for you. Now, if grief uh, is what empathy looks like, what does honor look like? It looks like voluntary suffering. Doing whatever you can do, whatever you can do to make this right. Let me give you two examples. Luke 9, 18. This is Zacchaeus. Um, you know, they talk about him being a short guy, you know, insecurity issues. Uh, 
Jesus points him out, says, I want to fellowship with you. I want to be in relationship with you. Listen to how he responds to the invitation to relationship by Jesus. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. I think that's called repentance. What gets you there? What gets you there? You're overwhelmed at knowing God, and you would be ashamed to not treat him as his name deserves. Honor is a very legitimate motivation for repentance. I just think this is powerful stuff. Listen to this. Now, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 7.11. This is the, if, you, uh, if anybody has ever you know, heard sermons on repentance, you're going to go to 2 Corinthians 7. And it talks about this difference between this thing called a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Now, I had read this passage for decades, thinking that uh, this was all about being... Uh, uh, looking for forgiveness from God. This sorrow that would lead to, oh, Father, forgive me. Now, listen to what, when, he, when, uh, when Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, listen to how he describes their repentance. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. When you and I confess our sins and repent, there's a, I am going to honor God's name. And I'm indignant that I was found faithless and selfish and perverted. And I will do whatever it takes to be in right relationship with God. Now, what you will typically hear uh, most sermons on repentance is that the fruit of that is that you come and you get forgiveness. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But the, the first sign of somebody who's repenting is to do whatever they can do to be restored to right relationship with God and honor him as God. That's what repentance looks like. I will suffer for you. I'll pay back four times the amount because I so value your opinion of me and your name, I will do whatever it takes to be back into right relationship with you. This is shocking stuff. But it makes sense. Suffering crucifies our self-rule, which is our initial and primary problem. And the only way to crucify our self-centeredness is to suffer. And I'm not talking around going about looking for how to suffer. That's just weird. What I am saying is I value you so much, I'm not counting the cost anymore because I value you so much. In conclusion, confession 
expresses two things, sorrow and submission. It expresses sorrow. I, I have empathy now. I see things from your perspective. I've sat in your presence. I've listened to your heart. I've considered you. In submission, I, I rightfully put myself under you. And as we talked about last week, I will do whatever you tell me to do. That's my expression of trust in you. I'll do what I'm told. I'm an unworthy servant. And of course, God comes, and we'll, we'll talk more about this even next week, but God comes and restores us and lifts us into sonship, not just being a slave. It's going to be great. But at this moment, it's about getting in touch with sorrow and submission. You guys, my biggest concern for us in this stage is that we will make our Christianity about behaving better. It's not about that. We get distracted by reaching the lost, as important as that is. We get distracted by trying to be righteous, as important as that is. And I think that God would want to slow us down and say, listen to me, know me, hear my heart, move out of this self-centered orbit and switch yourself over to being oriented around me. And this is gonna take you a minute. It's gonna take a minute to sit in his presence, to consider the consequences, to choose empathy, to feel the shame. It's gonna take a minute and that those things would be motivated by him and not by some self-absorbed thing. I don't know of a way to move forward in Christianity without this valley. And I am urging you today to befriend the cross. Because without the cross, there is no resurrection life. And the cross feels like sorrow and submission. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will. That's, an, that's a heart of honor. It says that Jesus scorned its shame because he loved and honored his father. We need to figure this out because if we don't, Christianity is just hard work because we're ignoring the matters of the heart. Can we please stand together? Worship team, you can come forward. <clears throat> Father, I just sense such freedom in this message. I can finally let go. I finally don't have to perform anymore. I finally don't have to make this all about whether you like me or not. You love us. You love us. It just feels like so much pressure to, to, to drop the masks. 
to, 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 to stop all the dipping and dodging and hiding and blaming and distancing and demanding and all these things. We can finally just let it go and surrender to you, to your affection. Surrender to your name, the name above every name. And confess that.